Welcome back to PedScript. I'm Zach Hodges, a pediatric critical care fellow in Dallas. And I'm Alice Shanklin. I'm a critical care fellow in Washington, D.C. Well, Alice, it's been a year. It has been a year. A year of podcasting, a year of PICU fellowship. It's been fun, right, Zach? Oh, it has been. I really appreciate all our listeners who have tuned in along the way. I would say that this year has definitely been challenging in the context of my professional training, but I've really enjoyed having this podcast as like a creative outlet. And I really appreciate, again, everyone tuning in along the way. Yes. I want to thank everyone for listening. And I also want to thank my attendings and especially my residents for their for their patience and their support. And something that we should say, we should again thank all of our guests who have helped made this project possible and the ones that we have lined up to join our podcast in the near future. Absolutely. So Zach, what are we talking about today? So today is a favorite topic among Peds ICU fellows. This is a collaborative episode with the Cribsiders Pediatric Medicine Podcast on pediatric ARDS. Yes. And today we are interviewing Dr. Yea. Dr. Yea is an associate professor of anesthesiology and critical care medicine at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, otherwise known as CHOP. He is an expert on pediatric ARDS, and we were so excited to pin him down for an interview. That's right. And our conversation lasted over an hour and a half, and we're going to split this up into three different episodes to make it easier for our listeners. Part one is really on diagnosing and the definition of ARDS, and we also talk about how we can risk stratify our patients between mild, moderate, and severe disease. Yes, this is a fantastic conversation. Let's get right to the episode. Sounds great. If everyone's ready to get started, I am just so happy that we have Nadir Yaya here. Thank you for coming on the show, and I'm I'm pronouncing your name right. Is that correct? Close. Nader Yaya. And just for the purpose of the show, is it can can we just call you by your first name, Nader? Please, please. All right. Excellent. Excellent. So, you know, we're in an informal group, and so we just want to sort of start some get-to-know-you questions. So, you know, so our audience can get to know you a little better. Can you give us sort of like a, you know, not necessarily a one-liner, but, you know, a couple lines of just describing yourself so we know who we're talking to? Sure. I'm a uh, intensivist at uh, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. I'm a uh, married father of two little girls, two and five. I am probably a little bit too comfortable with conflict. and. I watch an inordinate amount of football and I have to tell myself constantly like how terrible professional football is for everybody involved. And that lives in tension with how much I enjoy it. Excellent. Excellent. That speaks to me a lot, actually. I feel That's like right. I'm the Struggle's exact real. same way. <laughs> it's a, it's a constant struggle. <laughs> Let's go with Alice first. Do you have any questions? Yeah. Uh, what is a book that every physician should read? So in all honesty, I really wish that every physician would read the red-covered CRC Press biostats and epidemiology textbooks just so we can stop doing stupid statistics over and over and over and pretending things that economists and statisticians have figured out like a century ago are suddenly being reinvented here. And knowing that that's unlikely to necessarily actually happen, I do like the book better by Atul Gawande. I don't always love medical nonfiction, but I do like I do like better because it it kind of gets at that tension that a lot of us have where we're operating with imperfect information and we're going to make mistakes. And and just the nature of how little we know about the body, how little we know about physiology, coupled with the fact that you're forced to make decisions in in a high stakes environment with limited information, you're occasionally going to be wrong. And that book, I think better than some others, leans into that as a necessary part of 
learning so that, you know, once you, once you have made a mistake or once you've encountered an error, like, what are you going to actually do with it after you've gotten over the initial period of processing it and feeling bad? Like you can, you can let it paralyze you and, and let it affect the next 10 decisions you make are like reactionary to the last thing, the last mistake you made versus like trying to grow from it in a way that really you're obligated to the next patient to like actually have learned from that last experience. And I think that's the best you can do. And, and so like, I think that that book gets at that better than most others that try to tackle that topic. Fantastic suggestion. I don't know if we've had that one yet. So we'll definitely, we'll put that on the list. Thank you so much. Awesome. Yeah, no, I try to be original. Zach, you got anything? Write, write down the, write down the biostats thing too, man. That's, that's, <laughs> we'll do, we'll do. Happy. We'll get that on the list. It's on the list. Literally any Evie's textbook would be acceptable. <laughs> Yeah. So um, maybe a spinoff from your book suggestion. Do you have a favorite failure that you'd like to share with us and maybe what you learned from it? I've, <laughs> I have a failure. Um, favorite failure is a tough one. It's a, I was a second year resident at uh, Children's Los Angeles and I'd been taking care of a patient uh, on an overnight call. And I had known this family like off and on. They, the patient had been in the hospital for, um, for therapies as many onco patients are. And uh, in this particular instance, I was asked to start a infusion of tacrolimus. And the attending going out the door told me the dose, and I ordered the dose. And uh, sometime at around 8 or 9 o'clock, pharmacy called me and said, that dose seems high. Are you sure that's the dose? And I was like, that's the dose. It's the dose I wrote down. That's the dose I ordered. That's the dose. That's what they told me. And I was super wrong, like super wrong, like tenfold wrong, like... I uh, shut the kids' kidneys down and put them into fluid overload ARDS, and they ended up getting coded, bagged, intubated that night. And I told the mom the next morning that all that had happened. And the lesson there, at, in retrospect, is obvious. Like pharmacy called me on a mistake, and like, and, and like, I just powered through. And like, the right move at that point would have been to like you know, question that and be like, how, how confident am I of like how right I am at that moment? Because somebody else who's highly qualified and highly trained has just called me on something and said like, that thing you ordered seems very wrong. And that is not what I did. And so like, I obviously learned that aspect from it, but that actually doesn't make it my like favorite mistake. My, when I told the mom about it the next morning and I went home and like, you know, kind of felt like bad for about a day, then the, the kid's still in the PICU the next day. And I'm doing like now a daytime service in on oncology. So it's like four floors away or something like that. I forgot exactly what the layout was, but it was like not next door. And I'm like, I'm still in Onco. The kids still in PICU. And they wanted to do something. Uh, the PICU wanted to do something. And the mom asked my opinion because she knew me mm. and trusted me. That was the lesson. That's very powerful. Thank you for sharing yeah, that. Yeah, like a day later. <clears throat> It seems that I didn't, mean, maybe, I didn't mean to bring the yeah. tone down, but no, like no, you but asked. <laughs> it seems like learn the lesson learned from the mistake is owning it with your patients and yeah. the bond that formed with this family was very meaningful. Yeah. And yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. I don't know what we can follow errors. that up with. How to, yeah, how to handle error is like a big theme in my own <laughs> for better or worse. Consider <laughs> myself an expert on errors. Um. <laughs> All right, so let's get, let's get right to our case from Cash Like Children's. So our patient, Mo Peep, it's a previously healthy fourth year old, a four-year-old boy who's admitted to the PICU from the emergency department with respiratory failure. 
His mom reports that the past two days, Mo began having symptoms of fever and cough, but over the past 24 hours, he's developed worsening shortness of breath and irritability. In the ED, he was volume resuscitated, given antibiotics, and intubated due, low, due to low oxygen saturations despite 100% oxygen with a non-rebreathing face mask. He's now sedated and mechanically ventilated in the ICU. The team is concerned that he's developing ARDS. So to jump right into our conversation, will you tell us exactly what we mean when we say a child is developing pediatric ARDS? Absolutely. So the patient's definitely developing ARDS. The underlying thought process there is that they're developing acute. So this didn't happen chronically. This isn't like an interstitial lung disease, which is happening and getting worse over weeks to months. This is acute, which we operationalize as like uh, whatever got them into this mess got them there within seven days. It's respiratory. So that's the acute hypoxemic respiratory failure part of it. It's, it's, this is primarily like a lung-specific organ failure that we're talking about. And so that's operationalized by either PF ratios or oxygenation indices or the equivalents of those using the pulse oximeter. And it's not explained by cardiogenic or hydrostatic pulmonary edema. So this isn't like an aneuric patient who became fluid overloaded and flooded their lungs. This isn't a heart failure patient with elevated left atrial pressures causing like pulmonary edema. This is like an inflammatory exudative, like barriers are breaking down, endothelial and epithelial barriers in the lung are breaking down, and uh, an active inflammatory process is pushing protein-rich exudate into the alveolar airspace, and that's what's flooding their lungs. And so it's acute, it's respiratory, it's distressing, it's a syndrome. The syndrome part of it is actually like, I wouldn't even ignore that aspect of the definition. The ARDS in and of itself is is about as helpful as saying that somebody has cancer. And so it's, it's accurate, but it's not particularly helpful as saying like that somebody has Philadelphia positive leukemia or something like that, right? So a lot of times in this patient and from that prodrome that you're describing, it's probable that that patient has ARDS secondary to a direct pulmonary infection or like a pneumonia. So like a pneumonia ARDS would be a more helpful categorization. And that helps like reduce the syndrome to something like, okay, this, this may need antibiotics in addition to the supportive care for helping their lung organ dysfunction actually operate. And so if that were like aspiration ARDS, you may come up with a different answer. If it were like um, ARDS after cardiopulmonary bypass, you may come up with yet a different answer as to like what supportive measures are needed in addition to the lung-specific failure that you're talking about. One question I have. So when we say pediatric ARDS, is it the same as any ARDS like with adults? Is it Would it be similar pathophysiological processes or is it just little ARDS? <laughs> <laughs> It's ARDS, but cuter. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, the short answer is that we don't know, but that's a, it's a little bit of a cop out when we say that. So ARDS, when it was initially described by Ashba in 1967, had two patients that were like around 18 years old, if not actually 18. And so they could have fallen under the purview of pediatrics. And the subsequent ways to define ARDS when it was initially called adult respiratory distress syndrome, reflecting off the fact that it looked a little bit like surfactant depletion neonatal RDS or respiratory distress syndrome. So like preemies, which are born in a surfactant deficient state. And then in the 80s with the Murray Lung Injury Score, and then in the 90s with the AECC definition where it became acute respiratory distress syndrome, that was a little bit of an acknowledgement that kids also get this shock lung phenomenon. We just don't know exactly whether it's exactly the same, but they seem to have a similar sort of uh, problem with it. And by and large, the triggering etiologies, although the percentages may be a little bit different, are still primarily infectious, mostly pneumonia 
and then non-pulmonary sepsis, and then a smattering of other things like aspiration. Back in the 80s and 90s, blood transfusions and trolley were invoked more, aspiration, trauma, pancreatitis, cardiopulmonary bypass, burns, other sorts of other sorts of inflammatory, occasionally infectious injuries that would like that would trigger it, but most commonly by pneumonia and sepsis. And so in that sense, yes, it seems to be a very similar phenomenon, just tinier, right? It's like it's it's just occurring in tinier humans, where like you have the same acute inflammatory pulmonary edema caused by something else, which is causing respiratory failure bad enough to typically need intubation. And so that can be oversimplified to missing some of the key differences between adult and pediatrics. So animal models have suggested that for the same degree of insult, younger animals will mount a less robust inflammatory response. So for the same level of like uh, inciting injury, you'll get like lower levels of IL-6 and TNF-alpha. And at it'll take higher tidal volumes to cause a comparable amount of ventilator-induced lung injury in a smaller animal than it does a bigger animal. And this is even normalized to their relative body weights or their FRC or whatever way you want to like kind of try and compare apples to apples as best you can. But there is this sense that kids may not necessarily have quite the same inflammatory milieu, even though the setup and the clinical presentation can look very similar. And this is this is corroborated to some degree, although indirectly, by the fact that the mortality rate for pediatric ARDS is approximately half of what it is for adults. And that's at all levels of severity. And so adult adult mortality rates hover around like 40%. Pediatric ARDS mortality rates hover around 20%. Severe ARDS mortality rates hover around 60%. And for pediatrics, it's about half that at about 30%. So that certainly could be explained by the differences in comorbidity that adults versus children have, like they have different comorbidities and they have, and certainly like, and some of that could also be explained by how you choose to enact a DNR or pursue limitations of care differentially between older people and, and children. But it does raise the question that it's not entirely clear that we are in fact talking about the same process, even though nominally there, there's, there's many similarities. And then neonates don't even get me started. Like neonatal respiratory distress syndrome is a surfactant deficiency caused by prematurity and immature lung development. But if one of those babies gets pneumonia, then they could have an inflammatory exudative process, which is very similar to ARDS in, in any other context, right? But how a preemie handles that with their immature immune system, underdeveloped lung, and naturally surfactant deficient state, that's that's a whole separate question as to like, are we are we still talking apples to apples at this point, even though all of them fall under a syndromic umbrella, which is about as helpful as calling all of that stuff cancer. Oh, wow. Thank you, Nar. That really shines a light on the clinical variability. And I, I appreciate the idea that the inflammatory milieu is different in children than adults generally. As we define this syndrome specifically, how heterogeneous it might be, we've moved recently, or at least in 2015, from the Berlin definition to the PALIC definition. Am I yeah. uh, the Pediatric Acute Lung Injury Consensus Conference definition? You got it. How would you, how would you describe that change? So Palak was building off uh, some of the strengths of the Berlin definition in adults. And so what we really liked about Palak was that it was pediatric specific. And so we made, there were a few, there were a few changes to it uh, relative to what some adults uh, had done at that point. The adults had used mild, moderate, and severe. They introduced a minimum level of CPAP. And uh, they otherwise operationalized some of the vagueness of the 1992 AECC definition, the American European Consensus Conference definition. So we liked what some of their formalization had done. So like acute 
became formalized to within seven days. The pulmonary capillary wedge pressure of less than 18 became formalized to recognizing that people don't place PA catheters anymore, became formalized to, look, just either get an echo or just have a pretty good idea that this isn't heart failure. Bilateral infiltrates or bilateral opacities in pediatrics, in a nod to the really poor inter-rater reliability of x-rays, just became new opacities. And so it could be unilateral or bilateral. And probably the most striking change is that the pediatric uh, definition for ARDS used oxygenation index rather than PF ratios, and it introduced a fourth category of uh, unstratified by severity, just called non-invasive pediatric ARDS. And so like if you were were on a non-invasive interface but uh, met PF ratio criteria, then you could could have ARDS. You just weren't stratified as mild, moderate, or severe. You were just called NIV. And then mild, moderate, and severe was restricted to intubated ARDS and uh, defined according to oxygenation index. And for both uh, PF ratios and OIs, they gave the SpO2 equivalents of SF ratio and OSI. And so that was a nod to the fact that you can have a fair amount of hypoxemia, but not everybody, there's a lot of institutional variability in terms of who gets arterial blood gases and who places arterial lines. And so you didn't want to restrict enrollment for studies or for cohort studies or for trials to people who like mandated getting a um, a blood gas if that wasn't within the workflow of whatever institution um, they were working in. And so like you still want to include those subjects because they probably had ARDS, they had hypoxemia, you just needed a different way to measure it. And so I think the use of uh, unilateral versus bilateral chest x-ray and the use of OI and OSI instead of PF ratios are probably the major deviations from Berlin. But otherwise, it like adopted a lot of the same structure as Berlin because we because I think Palak did appreciate the formalizing of some vague concepts that Berlin was trying to do. Hey, I'm Ciara Minova, a graduate student of psychology and neuroscience of mental health at King's College London, and I'm so excited to share with you my new podcast, which is called Behind the Stigma. Every other week, I will be mainly talking to the podcast clinical psychologists, clinicians, researchers, educators in the field, you name it, basically people that I find so inspiring and that will help us understand the latest research, concepts, but also complexities and controversies surrounding mental health. These are going to be some great discussions and a peek into the fascinating world of psychology, neuroscience and psychiatry. So just to summarize for our listeners, um, especially those who are not uh, yet critically care trained, would you mind just walking us through the the definition for ARDS right now for pediatrics? And that's a great, de- uh, sure. just some of the, de- yeah, just some of the definition uh, criteria. Absolutely. So we have the uh, the numbers for our, um, for our general pediatricians. So uh, the acute is formalized as having an inciting insult within seven days of meeting uh, the rest of the criteria. And so like you couldn't have had your pneumonia like three weeks ago and now like now you're hypoxemic. It's like like you need to invoke something new that happened within the last seven days. The chest x-ray criteria is defined as new opacities that are not um, atelectasis or pleural effusion. The opacities can be used by x-ray most commonly and like but they but if you had a CT or ultrasound we would probably allow that although like the definition doesn't explicitly say that but like there's some there's some nod to like you need some sort of imaging criteria to get you there the pulmonary edema which is presumably what the opacity is representing cannot be 
hydrostatic. And so you need some evidence. If you have some suspicion that this could be hydrostatic pulmonary edema, then like you need some way to prove that it's not that. So you can certainly have sepsis with myocardial dysfunction and ARDS. And so then what you're saying is that the heart failure is only partly explaining the pulmonary edema, but the overall sepsis inflammation is explaining the rest of the pulmonary edema. And so this patient does in fact have pediatric ARDS. But if you had somebody with just straight myocarditis or dilated cardiomyopathy, and so you look at that x-ray and you say, you know what, I think 100% of this pulmonary edema is due to LA hypertension and and cardiogenic pulmonary edema, then that patient would not have pediatric ARDS. And that retains a bit of subjectivity. And it's not any more or less subjective, frankly, than a wedge pressure. But but the the clinical interpretation does open itself up to some subjectivity. Finally, the severity stratification is um, NIV, mild, moderate, or severe. So NIV requires you to have a PF ratio less than 300 or a SF equivalent. The invasive intubated, that is to say intubated definition, OIs of 4 to 8 are mild, 8 to 16 are moderate, and greater than 16 are severe, with SpO2 OSI-based equivalents for each of those um, that are listed in the table that define them. Patients with cyanotic heart disease and who are chronically mechanically ventilated can also have pediatric ARDS, but their severity is undefined. They just need to have a deterioration in oxygenation above their baseline or worse than their baseline but they also do not get any further stratification beyond that. So as a clinically practicing uh, MedPeds doctor, I, it's been a long time since I've been uh, in the ICU. Um, and we're, we're saying a couple of uh, things that I, I don't quite recall. So what is a P, P to F ratio? Could you explain that a little <laughs> bit? Uh, it might help, you know, of course, mostly for our medical student listeners, but definitely I could use that uh, as well. No, of course. So like, so the PF ratio is the ratio of the PaO2 on an arterial blood gas to the FiO2 uh, presented as a fraction of inspired O2, uh, which varies between 0.21 or room air and one or 100% oxygen. And the, the FiO2 part of that equation is most accurate in intubated patients because there you're getting 100% delivery straight into your lung. And so that would be the most reliable of the measurements of FiO2. And, and the PALIC definition operationalizes the PF and the OI in such a way that like that it tries to tell you like how to calculate the FiO2 if you're on a non-invasive mode to get you as close as possible to inaccurate uh, FiO2. And then in an intubated patient, you're using oxygen index or oxygen saturation index. And that is the PF ratio essentially like uh, normalized to the mean airway pressure. So it's the mean airway pressure divided by the PF ratio would give you the oxygenation index. So I understand the PDF rate, PDF ratio. And I understand he's mentioned earlier that PALIC, one, one thing they wanted to do was to add on the oxygenation index or the OSI. What advantage does that really have if, for us at the bedside taking care of these patients? That's a great question. So one of the questions that... Uh, the pediatric group had was, is a patient who's on a PEEP of 10 and a mean area pressure of 15, and whatever PF ratio you get with that, is that the same patient as if you were on a PEEP of 20 and a mean area pressure of 25? And if you got the same PF ratio, should those two patients be categorized the same severity, even though one of them is getting twice the amount of PEEP? 
the Berlin group also thought about this. The Berlin group actually, like in the long text of the JAM article talking about Berlin, they said that for the severe category, they thought about making severe uh, ARDS for adults actually require a PEEP of 10, and that that did not improve the area under the curve for mortality discrimination, so they discarded that as part of their definition. In pediatric ARDS, when the palate group was thinking about this, they thought that OI captured the concept of what they were getting at a little bit better than establishing mean airway pressure or PEEP cutoffs across the mild, modern, severe stratifications. And so it kind of incorporated the degree of support into the PF ratio. Uh, in excuse me, in, uh, it incorporated the degree of ventilator support alongside the degree of hypoxemia to give you a summary metric, which may be a more accurate reflection of how sick the kid is. In prospective studies, OI marginally but consistently outperforms PF ratio in terms of discriminating mortality. A deeper, more annoying question is actually whether mortality discrimination is the best use of a mild, moderate, severe severity stratification? Or are there other things that you could use to that the definition should be doing other than predicting mortality? But the long and the short of it is that that's how we got to OI and OSI, is that like we wanted some way to like incorporate like degree of support because we thought that there was a problem by assigning people with different, vastly different levels of ventilator support, but the same nominal oxygenation to the same severity category. And we needed some way to operationalize it, and OI was built in. And pediatrics, because of NICU and ECMO, uh, was used to thinking in OI as much as it was used to thinking in PAO2 to FIO2 ratios. Maybe just a quick review for our, our listeners and our learners um, and medical students. The main determinants of oxygenation are your FIO2 and your mean airway pressure. Uh, and the OI allows you to incorporate that mean airway pressure essentially through PEEP into describing how severe your patient's ARDS is, if I got that right. Yeah, it's perfect. Awesome. And then just to also summarize, we talked a little bit about some of the common causes of pediatric ARDS. We mentioned pneumonia, we mentioned sepsis, but just to complete the uh, the piece, is there anything specific that we should think about um, when we think ARDS big picture in our differential diagnosis? I definitely think that uh, infectious causes uh, are responsible for about 75% of ARDS. And like broadly, pneumonia, infectious pneumonia, many of which are caused by viruses and you're never going to grow a, a actionable bacteria. But in immunocompromised patients, definitely like look really hard for an infectious source because one, they're immunocompromised. And so there's certainly a risk for a infection of some kind or another, whether viral, bacterial, or fungal, or cryptic, or weird, or otherwise, right? Like, but, but that is a population in which I would look harder than average for making sure that I'm not missing a treatable infection. And then other things which could cause, um, like in, in a gross categorization is direct versus indirect lung injury. And so that's that's a way of thinking about whether the lung epithelial barrier is damaged first and the, and the injury came in from the airway side and then spread to the rest of the lung or indirect lung injury in which the injury propagated through systemic inflammation and may have damaged the endothelial blood vessels first and then invaded the alveolar epithelial space. So direct lung injuries are examples of like pneumonia, but aspiration, uh, smoke inhalation, drowning, uh, 
like charcoal aspiration after like a after like a a you know an ed toxicology misadventure gone bad things like that and indirect lung injuries are things like sepsis is the is the prototypical like systemic process which probably hits the endothelium first and then the epithelium and then you also have things like cardiopulmonary bypass CART-19 or engineered T-cell therapies and other versions of like uh, engineered T-cell therapies and the associated cytokine release syndromes with them, pancreatitis. I'm certainly missing a few, but and, and cardiac arrest, for example, is like a is probably something which can cause ARDS, but which is a combination of like uh, systemic inflammation that may be involving blood vessels before it actually directly affects the lung. But broadly, those are some ways to think about uh, categorizing where the etiology of ARDS is coming from. Oh, wow. And definitely sort of the bread and butter of pediatric critical care medicine, right? All of these things from transplant to drownings. um, I do have a question. So you are an expert in this area. When you're on a stretch of service, oh yeah, Uh, when you're on a stretch of service and you're looking at your numbers in the morning, what value do you find yourself calculating? How do you trend it? And how does that change the way you're thinking about your patient on in the day to day? That is a phenomenal question. That is a phenomenal question. Um, OI. And is is probably the value that I that is not immediately obvious to me. And there's a there's a there's the gestalt of knowing that yesterday my patient was on a peep of twelve and fifty percent, and today they're on a peep of ten and forty percent, and the next day I round on them, they're on a peep of eight and thirty percent. There's that overall trend that doesn't require me to necessarily do any math. But calculating an OI in the background, because it's for whatever reason, although you would think that we can put people on the moon, but we can't you know, get an EMR to give a consistent oxygenation index in my flowchart. Um, mm-hmm. That makes it a variable that like is helpful to track. And I've actually, it, there, there have certainly been times where I've been rounding and there's an uncertainty as to whether a patient has plateaued or is actually getting worse or is getting better because one variable may have gone up, but the other variable may have gone down. And trending out a summary metric like OI has actually been quite helpful in terms of saying like, no, this, this, this dude's getting worse. And we should actually, we should actually be like, if this patient is getting worse, then we should either reconsider what we're doing. Like, are we in fact maximizing this current therapy and we just need to ride this out because this is the natural history of whatever they have? Or should we be thinking about what to do for refractory ARDS and our next set of therapies that um, that we may need to invoke beyond the basics of supportive care. Sure, it seems people start talking a lot more about OI when it gets above twenty. It's certainly true, because and I think that that speaks to the um, that speaks to the fact that like I think the gestalt that you have under twenty is that the patient is manageable or like the settings are not that bad, and that this is like an ex- this is not something that I need to go through the exercise of like calculating every single time on round. You can broadly tell whether somebody is like better, worse, or same without going through the entire math of like either of calculating either a PF ratio or an OI. You can kind of tell like from the ventilator settings in the FIO2 that the lung is either adequately recruited or not, and that the degree of support is either tolerable or not. And it's only when the numbers start exceeding that that you're like, okay. Let's do some math here. Whoa, that's actually sicker than I gave him credit for. You know, that kind of, that, that, that that's, it, and it's right around 16 or 20 or severe pediatric ARDS, according to the palate guidelines, when people do start like noticing those numbers and caring about them, which could also be true in adults. I think people like, when Ashbaugh described ARDS, and not to, not to belabor this point, but the 1967 description of ARDS was patients who were having trouble hitting a 100% saturation on 100% of FIO2. So like, these patients were PF ratios less than 100. 
And so these were the severest of the severe that are generally being described if you like worked out their PF ratios, right? And so a lot of, and, and there's a tacit acknowledgement of this if you look at the more recent adult trials as well. All the negative trials, except for the tidal volume trial in 2000, okay, like all of them have, all of the negative trials have recruited patients with PF ratios less than 300. But the neuromuscular blockade trial of in like, I don't know, what was that, like 10 years ago now? And that recruited patients with PF ratios less than 150. And the proning trial recruited patients less than 150. And the ECMO trial had very stringent oxygenation criteria. So there is even an acknowledgement, a tacit acknowledgement that like that the milder and moderate forms of ARDS may not actually need the degree of intervention and support that the more severe versions of ARDS need. And there's a tacit acknowledgement of that, whether the adults, the, whether the adults choose to formalize that or not, or acknowledge that or not, there's, there's a sense of that happening in adult ARDS as well. The only positive sure. trials come from the sick patients. Yeah, that's where there's work to be done, right? The yeah, sick is, exactly. The sick yeah. Is good. Oh, yeah. And thank you for listening to this episode of Pete's Crit. Please remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as replacement for medical advice. The views expressed during this episode by hosts and our guests are their own and do not reflect the official position of their institutions. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at pedscriptpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at critpeds and at pedscrit on Instagram for real-time show updates. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review in your favorite podcasting application and share with your colleagues. Also, if you'd like to support the making of the podcast, please see the description for Venmo information and how to become a Patreon. Any donation will be appreciated. Thank you again for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.